You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, we're delighted to be able to have Ron Klain join us on this podcast. Ron's former chief of staff to Vice President Biden, and before that, Vice President Gore served as the Ebola czar when we first got to know one another quite well in 2014-15. He's a columnist in Washington Post and a frequent commentator on the cable networks and is a senior figure in the Biden campaign. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to catch up with you on these issues. So this is billed as a as a particularly horrible week. We've seen what's happened in New Jersey and New York City. People are watching carefully what's happening in New Orleans, Detroit, and many other urban centers. And we've gone through a, a number of really big mistakes around testing, around PPEs and ventilators and reagents. And we're seeing a sort of dangerous politicization partisanship here and an anti-science, anti-public health mood that's that's jumping forward here. It's really a, a, a particularly disturbing and difficult period right now. And we know that pandemics change history. They change norms. They change institutions. Uh, they change societies and demographics, clearly. I'd like you to look forward for a moment. Start the conversation by asking you, what do you think the conclusions are going to be from those who are looking back in five or 10 years at this moment in time? What do you think the main conclusions are likely to be? Well, look, I think people will look back on this and they will see a couple things. I mean, first of all, they're going to wonder why all the warnings that people like you, Steve, and, and your colleagues at CSIS and other Blue Ribbon Commissions issued over the years, why they were ignored, why all these things that were so clear as almost inevitable to happen, why they weren't paid attention to. And so when people say no one saw this coming, you know, I just have to always push back against that because many bipartisan groups, many think tank groups, many groups of elected officials have been saying for years something like this was going to happen. And that's, I think, the first thing that people will shake their heads at and wonder why all that was ignored. And then I think the second thing will be, well, once it started, why didn't we act more quickly? We certainly knew in December and early January that we were going to face an outbreak, an epidemic of coronavirus in this country. Uh, I don't think we knew quite how bad it would be. There was still the data was uncertain, but we knew this was coming. And so why didn't we do more, more quickly to get ready to prepare our healthcare facilities, to get the testing in place, to get the gear for our healthcare workers, to get the equipment we needed to treat patients. We had time to do this and we didn't do it. And that's a problem. And that's, again, I think there's going to have to be a reckoning on that. I also think, though, some things are going to change going forward. We will learn some lessons out of this. I think if you look at how different countries have reacted to coronavirus, those countries that had an experience with SARS were the ones to put the social distancing restrictions on most quickly and most extensively. They had lived something like this before, and they knew what a difference going quickly and strong on social distancing could make. So 
you know, I think it's important as we think about coronavirus to realize that this is going to be with us for a long time. We're going to probably see this current wave of cases fade, but then another one come back. And hopefully, when that comes back, even before we get to what happens five, 10 years down the road, we're talking about six, eight, nine months down the road, hopefully we will react more quickly and more decisively when this threat reemerges. Ron, have you given much thought to what the priorities are likely to be on the other side of this pandemic in terms of restructuring our approaches in government and and, and internationally as well? Um, If anything, this pandemic should be the force that finally breaks the code on this cycle of crisis and complacency that we've been stuck with for decades now. And there's going to be a lot of soul searching, but I do think that we're going to be a different government on the other side of this crisis. How would you spell out what the reform agenda is going to look like? Well, I I certainly hope so, that we will be different in the way we handle this going forward. I think there are a couple things. First of all, I think the benefits of investing in surveillance and investing in detection are clearer than ever. So I think some of the things we saw in recent years with cuts in the PREDICT program, cuts in CDC, you know, I think those things hopefully will never happen again. And if anything, we'll invest more robustly in those kinds of programs so that we can get as much advance warning about what's coming and where it's coming as possible. Secondly, I hope this is a wake-up call that our healthcare security in the United States is inexorably interconnected with the health security of all parts of the world. Look, we can have a big debate about what kinds of travel restrictions President Trump imposed and when he imposed them and how it compares to other countries and was it enough and was it too late and all these things. But the reality is that no country can wall itself off in this interconnected world from the health threats of other countries. By the time we see these threats coming, We've got just an enormous amount of travel and trade that's occurred and so on and so forth. So the only way for us to all be safe is to have an early detection system that's global in nature and a strong response system that's prompt and global in nature. And those two things, I hope, are the lingering takeaways from this. We in the United States, we have the benefit, as always, of two oceans between most of the other continents of the world and a large country and all these things. And none of that, none of that protected us from the coronavirus. We already have the most number of cases in the world. We're probably going to have the most number of deaths in the world. Maybe other countries will surpass that eventually. But we certainly are getting slammed by this, notwithstanding the benefits of distance and some isolation here as a continent apart from Asia and apart from Europe. And that's not enough to protect us. What's only going to protect us is being able to get the information more quickly and get our preparations up more robustly when the warning signs go off in the future. I do think we're going to have to restore the public trust and confidence, and we're going to have to be very busy at protecting our jewels like CDC and others and putting in place some structures in government that are authoritative and and competent and very quick moving. I mean, we've this has just been a period of gross disarray and incoherence in the response. I want to ask my co-host, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in here. Thank you, Steve. Ron, along those lines, I want to ask you, you know, can and should the United States take a global leadership role in making sure that those systems and the global order on global health is in place? 
yeah, we can, we should, we must. Look, we are blessed to have the best doctors, scientists in the world in the U.S. We are blessed to have in the Centers for Disease Control, the world's leading public health authorities, the world's leading detectives in isolating and finding uh, cases of these kinds of pandemics and epidemics. We're blessed to have at the National Institutes of Health and the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, the world's leading scientists doing the world's best research. And all those tools are only useful if we put them to work, not just in our country, but around the world. Because in the end, the safety of our country, the safety of our people is inexorably intertwined with the safety of the rest of the world. And we're seeing that play out right now in this coronavirus challenge. We will bend the curve and beat this disease in the U.S. But as it continues to rage in Africa, in South America, as it spreads throughout Asia, it will come back again and again and again unless we help these countries fight the epidemics in their country. And I I think that we have to be the global leaders here because it's the right thing to do. It's the humanitarian thing to do, but also because it's the smart thing to do. It's what's going to keep our people safe. If you think back to the Ebola response in 2014 and 2015, people say, well, why did the U.S. take such a leadership role? Why did we make the largest deployment ever of CDC personnel overseas? Why did we, for the first time ever, send U.S. military personnel to fight a disease overseas? You know, Why was this our problem? And my answer to that is, first and foremost, it was our problem because it was a humanitarian crisis, and the U.S. is a great nation, and we can help other countries. And that's what we did with great success in regard to the Ebola epidemic in 2014. But we did it also because it was the only way to keep the American people safe. If you didn't check Ebola in West Africa, it would have spread to other parts of Africa, would have spread to adjacent Nigeria, a giant country with a global super city in Lagos. It would have spread from there to Europe, would have spread from Europe to the US. So, I mean, I think the only way to keep our country safe is to understand our interconnectedness with other countries and to have a global health security strategy. In terms of U.S. global leadership, as we move forward and the United States takes a global leadership role in combating some of these wicked diseases, how does the United States need to confront countries like China and others where the diseases originate from? Yeah. So I think there's two things there. One, we need to demand transparency and accountability in all countries on this. I mean, that's what the international health regulations that all countries have signed up for require. And I think the Chinese unquestionably fell short here. And I think for all of President Trump's tough talk about China, he actually turned a blind eye to that at the critical moment in December, in January, when we should have been insisting that we get CDC personnel Uh, on the ground, into the key places to really understand what was happening, to really get the data firsthand, not have to rely on secondhand reports. And I think that we have to demand that all countries be transparent and open about that. The Chinese just weren't here. And some of what we're seeing is as a result of that. I also think it's important to think about U.S. leadership in this way, which is in terms of leading this fight here at home and around the world and leading other global health security issues around the world, If we don't lead, other countries, first of all, won't lead as well as we do. So that's a problem. And secondly, our leadership provides us with the scientific and medical learning that protects the American people. 
you know, I think back to what was going on in West Africa in 2014, where we were on the ground doing research, and the Chinese were also on the ground doing research. And the question was, who would develop the first Ebola vaccine? Who would acquire the the learning that you could only get from being on the front lines for how to prevent and protect people in the future? And because we led so well in that fight, we had the research. We developed the first vaccine. And if the Chinese had, maybe they would have access to that vaccine and maybe we wouldn't or we wouldn't know as much about it. And so I think we have to understand that each one of these responses is a crisis in and of itself, but it's also about learning for the next one. And we want to have the best knowledge, the best science, the best research in our country to help protect the world and protect our people. And we want to have control of our own destiny. And the way to have control of our own destiny is to lead in this field, to learn in this field, and to drive the research and the outcomes in this field. That's the best way to keep the American people safe. Getting lost in all of this mayhem is the fact that U.S. leadership has eroded so badly in this period. And the stumbles that we've seen have been shocking, not just to us, but to the rest of the world. And Restoring that leadership is going to require a pretty special and strategic approach, I think, looking ahead. And we're going to start from a position of deficit, unlike anything we've really seen before. If you could say a few words about that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that in this area, as in many areas, the past three years, the America first mindset, the isolationist mindset has served us very poorly. And I understand the appeal of it, the idea that we have problems in our own country. Why should we worry about other countries? What do we get out of our investment in these international institutions? What do we get out of our investment in uh, these uh, international agendas? But I think we're seeing like up close and in a critical way, the answer to those questions. If we don't invest in global health security, if we don't build the kind of surveillance systems that help us detect diseases around the world, then we're more and more at risk. I mean, I think that whether your particular field of security is military security or climate security or pandemic security, what we know is that the best way to keep the American people safe is to invest in global structures that help uh, identify and respond to these challenges around the world. And if there was some debate or division among the American people about the wisdom of that before this, I hope that the coronavirus crisis is one thing that points to a definitive answer to that. If we don't work with our allies to find, detect, isolate, and respond to epidemic diseases around the world, then we will continually be at risk here in this country, and we will continue to see events like the one that's unfolding right now unfold again. We have the tools to find them early. We have the tools to respond more authoritatively. We have the tools to act more promptly, and we just have to invest in them and engage with our allies and our partners around the world in doing that. Are you a little alarmed at the attacks that are being directed from conservative ranks against Dr. Tedros and WHO itself in this period, alleging that they were too closely allied and too forgiving of the Chinese when the Chinese were being a very untransparent and very uncooperative? Well, I, look, I think all institutions deserve to be uh, reviewed and their conduct of this is. And I was critical of WHO uh, in its delay 
in announcing a public health emergency of international concern. And I myself said, I thought that there was too much influence from China in, in doing that. But what I will say is, and I, and I think WHO should do better, and I think that criticism of WHO is justified. But I also think that we need to be mindful of the fact that we in this country also, unfortunately, turned our back on tough action and also allowed the Chinese to obscure the truth and also allowed the Chinese to deny access for our personnel uh, to the country. So in as late as January 24th, President Trump was busy tweeting that the Chinese were doing a great job, that the Chinese were being transparent, that all Americans owed a debt of thanks to President Xi. And so I think there's a lot of scrutiny to go around after this is over. I think there's a lot of scrutiny to go around about who did or didn't get tough on China soon enough. And uh, I think asking those questions about WHO is absolutely fair. But asking those questions about the Trump administration is also quite fair. So you mentioned that th there's been warnings before, and you mentioned that CSIS and others have been part of that. I mean, even back in 2001, CSIS conducted a pretty famous exercise in national security circles called Dark Winter. And it was influential because we briefed Vice President Cheney about six months after we did it. And there hasn't been such a sustained interest in dark winter over the years, because as we pass through global health scare from global health scare, there seems to be a lost interest. But this time around, it's inconceivable that there'll be lost interest. What does the next president need to do to ensure that this kind of global leadership you're talking about to keep our self-interest here in the United States, to keep our people safe and to keep the world safe, what has to happen to make sure that all these things are put in place? Well, first of all, I, I sadly think it's not inconceivable that there will be lost interest. I mean, I think sadly, the examples you cite and others I could cite uh, indicate, as Steve alluded to earlier, we have this kind of boom and bust mentality with regard to these public health crises, these epidemic crises, where in the moment we're very focused, we're very intense about it, and then the moment passes and we move on. Indeed, we can go all the way back to 1918 and the Spanish flu epidemic and recognize that it was the single largest mass casualty event in American history. And what I can tell you is we can go around the country and there are literally hundreds of memorials to World War I and World War II, as there should be. And there's one memorial in this entire country to the people lost by Spanish flu. We tend to have this forgetting phenomenon with regard to these epidemics. That was certainly the case, with, as you say, with dark winter after the anthrax attacks uh, in particular. It was the case after SARS. It was you know, the case again, even after Ebola. I remember when I assembled the group near the end of the Ebola epidemic and said, let's start to work on an after action report so we can teach lessons learned here. And this report now has become public. And it's gotten a lot of attention in the New York Times in the past couple of weeks. But the very first meeting of the team to write it, I said, I asked for a show of hands of who had read the after action report from the last set of outbreaks. And the fact of the matter is we keep on writing these after action reports and not acting upon them. So I hope there's the will after this one to do what we haven't done in the past, which is to take all these studies and reports and analyses and put them to work. What we need to do has been obvious for a long time and remains obvious today. That's to build up a global surveillance and detection system. That's to be prepared with a, a playbook. Such a playbook existed. The Obama administration left it for the Trump administration as to what to do when a crisis like this breaks out. It's to execute quickly on that playbook. It's to build up our stockpiles 
It's to quickly take control of supply chains and get the materials produced, flexed up, and, and, and distributed. And it's obviously to do the things that we need to do to really ramp up the production of therapeutics and a vaccine especially. So the key elements are all well known. It's just do we have the will and the organization to do them. Hopefully, this will teach a lesson that we have not learned from past crises. Shifting a bit to politics here, Vice President Biden is stuck in the basement. And we're, we're, a lot of us are calling it, you know, when he goes on camera, the basement tapes, you know, referring to, of course, Bob Dylan and the basement tapes. These are the Biden basement tapes. And, you know, some Democrats and others are saying, well, Biden's not leading enough. What can he do from the basement to help reassure Americans that his leadership going forward will be uh, the right leadership? Well, I think you can look at the things he said to date. I mean, there's a piece out today in the Washington Post that compares his statements from January, February, and March to President Trump's statements. And it's a stunning contrast of someone who saw this coming early, who laid out actions that needed to be taken early, who laid out a very precise action plan all the way through February and March, uh, and who continues to call out today the steps that need to be taken. So I think he's made his views, his perspectives very clear in contrast to President Trump's. In the here and now, what the vice president's doing is a couple of things. First of all, he's trying to bring forward his best advice, his best recommendations for what needs to be done. And he specifically has talked about the president making more use of, more than the token use he's made to date, of the Defense Production Act to ramp up our production of masks and gowns, gloves, the protective gear we need, ventilators, all those kinds of things we need. We need more of it. And then to take control of the supply chain and get those materials where they need to be when they need to be there. He's talked about using the military more extensively than, the again, the small uses that have been made to create additional hospital beds and additional facilities to treat the coronavirus cases. And we, we need that so urgently, not just in New York and New Jersey, but increasingly across the country where hospitals are going to get overwhelmed. And of course, he's addressed from the start this real gap in testing. You know, there are reports out now that even in places that don't appear to have a lot of coronavirus cases, there are many more than we think. We know that because people are showing up sick in the hospitals uh, with undiagnosed illnesses, largely because we aren't testing and we aren't getting the results back to know what they're sick from. So I think this disease has spread across the country. The number of cases is escalating across the country. And the vice president's laid out pretty clearly how he would handle this differently than President Trump. It's got to be hard for him knowing vice president and knowing his record. He, he's a people person. He likes to be out, you know, talking to people, helping people through crises. You know, he's been through so much in his life and he's really been comforting to people. And he's a the kind of person who likes to go out and touch lives. How has he been handling this? Well, you know, he's been doing what he can do uh, virtually, uh, which is what he is doing. He does uh, almost every single day some kind of virtual town hall or engagement with people over streaming platforms. He's constantly trying to talk to people. I also know he's on his phone quite a bit talking to everyone from the governors who are on the front lines to healthcare workers on the front lines to just individuals he knows who've been touched by this uh, in their families and in their communities. And so he's providing advice, he's providing leadership, he's providing counsel. And I think all those things are, are useful as we cope with this. What are you finding, Ron, are the most effective means of communicating in this period? Because we've all been thrown into <laughs> thrown into a whole new world here. And 
we're all trying to figure out what's meaningful and, and effective operating in uh, under these constraints. And he has this special challenge, obviously, and he also has to balance out his desire to speak for the on behalf of the nation at this time and to hope that we have a more effective response while also being, you know, a very accurate critic of the missteps that are being taken by the Trump administration itself. So he's got a delicate situation that he faces and has to be very innovative on the communication side. Yeah, I think it's really important for him to be clear and transparent as he is being, to uh, reach out to people through uh, interviews that he's doing, through the mass media, through the programs we're producing. He's doing some new and creative things. He's launched his own podcast. I'm sorry you have another competitor, but he's launched his own podcast called Here's the Deal that he's putting out an episode of each week where he talks to people about this crisis and other issues confronting our country. Uh, So I think it's a mix of old tactics and new tactics. It's a mix of appearing on media interviews as well as creating some of our own content to try to get his messages across and try to connect with people. I absolutely agree. It's a challenge for him in the sense that he does like to be with people. He does like to work the rope line, shake hands, see voters up close. And obviously, it's uh, unfortunate that he can't do any of that right now. But I do think he's finding ways to connect with people, to get his message out, and try to be helpful however he can in this virtual world we all live in now. Ron, one of the things that's been praised in terms of creativity and communications is they've had you do some explainer videos about what's going on. Will that continue from the campaign from surrogates like yourself and from the vice president himself? I'm sure we'll do more videos from the vice president, from others. We're going to do produce all kinds of content around this and around other issues. We're going to do more of the kind of virtual town halls he's been doing. He did one uh, this past weekend with families who were prominent families on YouTube, uh, hosted by uh, Michelle Kwan. Uh, so I think you're going to see all kinds of traditional and non-traditional means of communicating with the American people during this period from Vice President Biden. The Vice President has suggested we might need to go to a virtual convention um, for the Democratic National Convention. And we've talked about how communications have become innovative and need to be innovative. The president of the United States is on the air every day for at least an hour, sometimes two hours. How important do you think innovative communications are going to be for the Biden campaign going forward? Well, look, I think we have been innovative in communicating. We continue to be innovative in communicating, and I think that's important. I also think, though, it's important to understand that voters in November are going to make a big decision about two very different people with very different agendas and very different approaches of leadership, of message, of policy. And I think that choice is being made clearer and clearer every day when you hear what the vice president's saying, when you hear what President Trump is saying. And so I get a little less caught up in the kind of the day-to-day cable war battles over this and more focused on the fact that what's shaping up here is one of the most stark, most differentiated, most striking choices uh, that we're going to see in a presidential election between the kind of person and president Joe Biden would be, the kind of person and president Donald Trump would be. And I think that choice will be squarely before the American people in November. And uh, I think Vice President Biden will prevail in that choice. I wanted to just focus on the impressive level of organization within the campaign of expertise in public health and and pandemic emergencies. I mean, as I understand it, you have a task force that's drawing from several of the different teams. We also have a 
group that's there to advise on sort of the operational realities of how do you go about having elections under these circumstances. Um, say a bit about how the campaign has, has gotten itself organized in order to bring forward the right type of expertise in the public health domain particularly. Yeah, I think that voters should be reassured that the vice president is consulting on a daily basis with some of the leading figures in public health. Dr. Vivek Murthy, the former U.S. Surgeon General, David Kessler, the former head of the Food and Drug Administration, uh, Rebecca Katz, uh, who uh, runs a global health program at Georgetown University, uh, Erwin Redliner up in New York, and, and many others. And he's hearing from them every day about the state of the epidemic, what's happening here in our country. He's hearing from them about what are the safe and unsafe things for his campaign to be doing, and so on and so forth. And so I think he's getting the very best advice uh, that he can be getting, and it's shaping both the conduct of his campaign as well as the kind of public policy proposals he's putting forward. Obviously, even before he assembled that group, uh, he had top-notch advisors in this field from the medical profession, from the Homeland Security field, people like Lisa Monaco, who used to be President Obama's Homeland Security Advisor, and others who have been advising him on how to approach the coronavirus epidemic and what policies to put forward for our country, what alternatives to put forward. So I think when the history of this period is written, his leadership, both as a candidate and as a person with a point of view about policy will be very strongly uh, vindicated and strongly shown to have been the right course of action. Ron, what's giving you the greatest hope today? I mean, this is a really dark moment we're in right now and a dangerous moment. And uh, people are very, very uncomfortable and fearful right now for very good reason. So I think it's important. And we ask this of almost every person that comes on this podcast to tell us where you draw strength and hope in this situation? Well, I think there are three real causes for hope right now. I think first, while I have been justifiably, I think, critical of the leadership of the federal response, the rotating cast of characters who've been in charge of the response, the disorganization, the infighting in the administration, it's important to know that the men and women who populate this response the outstanding career servants in CDC, in FDA, in DHS, in FEMA, in USAID, in you know CDC, in you know NIH, all these places, all these agencies, the the people who have been there are still there. They are doing fantastic work. They are the ones who are making the difference. Uh, they are the ones who are delivering for the American people. And while I wish they had better leadership and organization, I have a lot of confidence in the strength and expertise of this large core of people who've been through this before, many of whom I work with on the Ebola response, and you all know very well, they're there, and that gives me a lot of comfort. Secondly, we do have the best scientists in the world working on therapeutics and vaccines. And I think we're going to get results on both those fronts with record speed. Now, there are challenges there. Discovering a vaccine is one thing. Making 300 million doses and getting it in people's arms is a very different thing. So I think when people talk about the vaccine, we often kind of short circuit the idea that once you have a vaccine, everyone all of a sudden has it. 
But I do think that what we can take comfort from is knowing that we've got the best people in the world at work on these medical research challenges, and they're making incredible progress under difficult circumstances. And then finally, I draw great comfort from the strength and resilience of the American people themselves. We've been through a lot of hard things in this country. We've always come through on the other side. We will come through on this one. Uh, The toll will be sadly large, larger than it should have been, but I think we will come through this a strong and resilient country, and we will get through this to a better place on the other side. Thank you so much, Ron. This has been a really rich conversation. We're really grateful for your leadership and for taking the time to be with us. My pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks so much, Ron.